Please be seated. How many of you boys and girls that are here are actually open presents already this morning? How many? Raise your hand if you open presents this morning. Are the pastor's children the only neglected children in the whole congregation? <laughs> it won't be long, children. Well, actually, I have about a two-hour sermon this morning, so you just have to be here. I'm teasing. I wouldn't do that to you. I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 98. We will not uh, do an exposition of Psalm 98. We'll wait for about 93 more sermons from Pastor Nathan to get there. But we uh, will consider this text as our starting point because this is the psalm that Isaac Watts used to write this wonderful hymn, Joy to the World. So I will read Psalm 98. Please note that Psalm 98 looks forward to the coming uh, king. And of course, when Isaac Watts writes Joy to the World, the king has come. So it's a beautiful fulfillment even of Psalm 98. Good hymns, those marked by sound theology and a fitting match of text and music, have endured because they are timeless and because they are based on scriptural truth. Joy to the world is such a hymn, to say the least. Hear God's word, Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Father, great joy comes to us when we think of our King, Jesus. We think of his coming. We think of his work that he's given us. And he empowers us to do by his spirit. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be changed, that we would appreciate just at least one new thing this Advent season that would apply directly to our life, how we live, and how you bring glory to yourself as a result. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. I enjoy sports, and I have enjoyed fantasizing about the best of all time in any given sport. If I could put across the eras certain players together, what team would that look like or what competition would happen if you had people from different eras playing one another in those given sports in soccer i think of rossi pele maradona valderrama platini and chiraboga even i've noted as of right late hockey gordy howe bobby orr gretzky lemieux they're close but they weren't in their primes when they overlapped and to see them in their primes playing together what a wonderful uh, picture that would be to see them play that game in football you think of brown payton Montana, Rice, the list can go on. In basketball, Jordan, Bird, Johnson, Olajuwon, Abdul-Jabbar, Chamberlain, even O'Neal in our day. Again, they were close in era, but they just didn't all exist at the same time in their prime. Imagine what that would have looked like. Baseball, Ruth, DiMaggio, Mantle, Jackson, Clemens, Rivera, Jeter. Wait a minute, those are all Yankees. What am I thinking? But still, golf, Sneed. Palmer, Nicholas, Woods, Tennis, think of Asher, Graf, Connors, Borg, Sampras, all these individuals who were 
the best at their time? Well, if I were to list the best of all time in the field of musical composition, I would certainly have in my list Watts, Handel, and Mason. If you were to put together a dream team to produce a hymn, you would have to pick Isaac Watts to write the words, George Frederick Handel to compose the music, and Lowell Mason to arrange the final hymn presentation. That dream team gave us one of the truly great hymns of the Christian faith, which we study this morning as our last of this great hymns of Advent series, Joy to the World. First, Isaac Watts. He lived from 1674 to 1748. Watts is rightly considered the father of the English hymn. Watts, uh, Watts ushered in the great age of evangelical hymnody. Watts was a pastor and a college professor. He wrote a logic textbook that was used at Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, and Yale for 40 years. On one end of the spectrum, he wrote a book on metaphysics. On the other end of the spectrum, he wrote a book of children's poetry. Watts was a man of small physical stature, just barely over five feet tall. He suffered various illnesses his whole life. In fact, towards the end of his life, those illnesses did challenge his walk with the Lord in serious ways, we can tell from his writings. There have been volumes written about Watts and his genius. Suffice it to say, in my humble opinion, Watts is the greatest hymn writer in the history of the church. His chief passion in hymn writing was to take the Psalms and put them into singable, singable metrical tunes. And he did this for 450 hymns. Now, mind you, there are 150 Psalms. He wrote 450 hymns based on the Psalms so that we can sing them. In our hymnal, we have 37 hymns by Isaac Watts. None of them had to be Calvinized. They're all reformed and all are faithful to the doctrines of grace. Some of the great hymns that Watts wrote besides Joy to the World, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, I Sing the Almighty Power of God, Not All the Blood of Beasts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, Jesus Shall Reign, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. These are just to name a few. Most of the hymns that he wrote, again, were based directly on the Psalms. Joy to the World is no exception, Psalm 98. Then there's George Frederick Handel. Handel was a contemporary of Isaac Watts, although born in Germany. Handel was a musical prodigy, as he became the assistant organist at the Cathedral of Halle in Germany at age 12. Handel wrote 46 operas, 32 oratorios, and was a prolific composer in many other genres as well. And of course, Handel's most famous oratorio, The Messiah, was written in 29 days. Messiah is an absolute musical masterpiece with some of the richest theological lyrics in the history of church music, based mostly on the book of Isaiah. The music used for Joy to the World was chiefly written by George Frederick Handel. Then there's Lowell Mason. Lowell Mason was born sometime after Watson Handel. In his gifting, his great contribution to the church was his ability to take the works of classical composers like Mozart, Haydn, Handel, Beethoven, and arrange them for hymn singing. This is what he did for the music, Joy to the World. And interestingly, especially to, us, to uh, those of us here at Redeemer, Mason worked in his early days as a bank clerk in Savannah, Georgia, where he worked on the side on his music development. He also served as the organist at Independent Presbyterian Church, the church that planted our church. Mason eventually settled in Boston, where he wrote over 1,600 religious works, and now is often called the father of American church music. Again, the dream team of hymn production, 
Watts, the words, handle the music, Mason, the arrangement. It's rare in history that we have this kind of a combination for one hymn. But most importantly, more importantly, the lyrical content and biblical depth of this hymn. This is what is so wonderful about it, and we can expect this from Watts. It's based on Psalm 98. Now, Psalm 98, as we read earlier, celebrates God's protection and restoration of his chosen people. It's looking forward to that ultimate messianic reign that will establish his people. Watts' carol then rejoices in the same way, but it speaks to something having been done now and ongoing. He will judge the world with righteousness. Joy to the world includes references to several Bible passages directly, besides just Psalm 98. But one historian notes this, and maybe you have noted this about joy to the world. Despite its lack of reference to Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, angels, wise men, or the manger, it has become one of the most beloved Christmas songs ever. In fact, some people will tell you that it's about the second coming of Christ, that he's going to come again in the future. You probably heard that. It's not. It is about the first coming of Christ and the ramifications of the first coming. In fact, when we look at the hymn, you'll see it states he's come. And then it rolls out what that then means for us today. I think it has profound application for us and causes us to really ask the question, what do we believe about Christ as king and his kingdom? I think there's a lot of misconception. Let's look at the first verse to appreciate how Watts develops this thought. He starts with joy to the world. Great joy. Why? The Lord is come. That is, he has come. He's here in that sense. Let earth receive her king. Let's everyone recognize the king is here. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. We are sure, although Watts doesn't uh, make comments in writing about this hymn, that in this first verse he's referring to the first advent of Christ because he uses the analogy, let every heart prepare him room. That uh, picture or that uh, shadow of Jesus going and not having a room when he was born. So there's a reference to his first coming here. The Lord has come. Every verse then that follows denotes that which is now happening in the light of Christ's coming. Who is Christ? The king. Let earth receive her king. Now, I think it's important, while we can't dive into this in totality, it would take weeks, and maybe at some point we'll do a a sermon series on the kingdom of God because I think it's one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of Christianity. And that's interesting given the fact that besides the person of Christ, what do you think the most often spoken about subject is in the Bible? It's the kingdom of God from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. Yet there's all sorts of ideas swirling around. Is the kingdom yet to come? Is it here? Is it already here? Not yet here? And all sorts of discussion and many different definitions about what the kingdom of God means. And I've come to believe in my short years on this earth, that that's the key to understanding the consummation of things, uh, the end of things, is understanding not what every detail in Revelation means yet, but rather what does this concept of the kingdom of God mean? And Watts wrote in an era where they had very distinct views about the kingdom of God and its influence on the world. This is the nature of his first verse. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Now, before we look at the other verses, I want to just submit to you for a moment the development of this concept of the kingdom of God. Maybe a 101, if you will, overview of the kingdom of God in Scripture. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says this, and you're familiar with it from Christmas, but I'd like you to think of it in its kingdom terms. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Note verse 7 of Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a forecast of not just someone coming to save us, but someone to rule. And from this time forevermore, from the time of his coming forevermore. Daniel, for all the debate there is about Daniel, listen to Daniel 2 verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So there's, always, or there's already a picture in the Old Testament prophets of a kingdom aspect. It's not just that Messiah comes to save personally. He does. But it's also to establish his kingdom rule, which is rule and reign over everything, not just people, creation even. That's the picture, the forecast of the one who would come. That's why you can understand early Jews struggling to accept Jesus as king because they're thinking in terms of an earthly king when the scripture is speaking in terms of his spiritual influence that he'll have slowly but surely over time by the transforming of people. But we'll get there in a moment. Matthew 3, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used synonymously in the New Testament. And to be at hand means it's here. doesn't mean it's coming, it's at hand. And he says this because his contemporary, Jesus, is there and will shortly be revealed. Behold, the Lamb of God, John says when he does finally meet Jesus face to face at that moment. Then in Mark chapter 1, we are told, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So it's here. And I'm the embodiment of it is what Jesus is saying. You see the slow progression and building of the kingdom of God concept. For all its complexities, and there are complexities, this simple truth is there. That God sees more than just the salvation of individuals. It's the building of his rule and reign now. And it happens with the coming of Christ. The first time. And it's ongoing. In Matthew 4. And he went through all Galilee, that is Jesus, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And he did these healings to show his authority as king, an authority that no earthly king had. He could heal people. King David was a great king, but he couldn't heal people. This is the king of the universe who can do that, who can heal. Do you know that the Sermon on the Mount is really a kingdom sermon? It's about living in light of our king. As believers who are saved, adopted, we now live in light of our citizenship in the kingdom of God. That's why Matthew 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's going to have the kingdom of heaven, but is the kingdom of heaven. There's a humility uh, that brings about a dependence on Christ that is then putting forth the experience of the kingdom of God even now for us. Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Later, Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. He's not telling people to seek something that hasn't yet come. 
He's telling them, seek first kingdom priorities, God's rule and reign over everything. And these things will be added to you. And as you would expect, the continuity of the kingdom teaching and preaching continues with the apostles. In Acts 19, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. The last words of the book of Acts say this about Paul. I hope this is what can be said about my life and your life at the end of it. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The kingdom of God is a primary theme in Scripture that we must wrestle with as believers. It will help dispel a lot of the end times fog, too, as we understand kingdom concepts. We label ourselves all sorts of things. You'll know what I am soon, if you don't already. But the point is, we can all agree, as believers, that the kingdom of God came with the king. And he's working through us to establish the dominance of his kingdom more and more. Now, how you see that come to its final consummation, that may be where the debate is. But there ought to be no debate among Christians that the kingdom is now. And we are not living in an escape door, escape hatch mentality where everything's getting worse. The church has no influence in the world. And we just sit back, protect our kids, protect ourselves, and just watch everything go to hell. That's not at all the call of the church. And I hope we can agree with that biblically. It's not the call of Christ on us. In fact, one author gives a great definition of the kingdom of God, taking all the different complexities in the verses that speak of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and says this, God's righteous reign in the earth, mediated by his son, Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God begins in the hearts of redeemed men and women and moves outward wherever men are subject to Christ's gospel and law. The kingdom of God is not preeminently political, though it has implications for politics. Wherever Christ's gospel breaks the stony heart of a sinful man or a sinful woman, bringing him or her to his or her knees in submission to Jesus Christ, there is the kingdom of God. As more and more men and women are converted and reorient their lives to the Bible, the kingdom of God extends throughout the earth in all spheres, vocation, technology, education, economics, science, the arts, and so forth. And we can't have influence in those things if we're sitting on the sidelines scared to death that it's been taken over by pagans. Instead, we are to take them over for Christ. That's the heart of the hymn before us. It's a victorious view of the church's work in the world. The first verse tells us the king has come. And then what's the next thing the king does? Joy to the earth in verse 2. The Savior reigns. He is reigning. Now he's going to reign. He reigns. Let men their songs employ. <clears throat> While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. It describes Christ establishing his kingdom and building his kingdom. His kingdom is now. Christ inaugurated it at his first coming. It's not something we're waiting for. It's now. The message of Christ in the New Testament is that the kingdom is here. We need to be about kingdom living as kingdom people. The Savior reigns now. We're not waiting for him. Am I being clear? The kingdom is now. We're not waiting for it. This is important for many, many practical reasons. I would submit to you, and I'm open for argument on this, 
But if you would look at the history of the evangelical church in America, when we gave up this concept of the kingdom and believed this end times fog that said that things will get worse and worse no matter what the church does, we gave up education and we gave up welfare and giving and mercy ministry. And why do you think that's important? Well, when you give welfare over to the, to the government, when you give over compassion and mercy ministry, they are not able to administer it as the people of God can. And there is no better way for the gospel to go forth than through compassion and mercy ministry. We gave it up, so now the church is only looked at as having a message with no work. Whereas before, if we're the ones taking care of the poor, the downtrodden, the sick, now they want to know what our message is because we're living like the Savior. But we gave that away saying the whole world's going to get worse. And now we give it over to the government the same way we did with education. And now we're all griping because it's all taken over by people who don't believe. When we're the ones to blame. Because we bought this eschatology that teaches that it's all going to get worse before Jesus comes back. And it's nowhere in the Bible. It's nowhere in Christ's spirit in the way he taught the church to be active. Nowhere. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns now. But look at the third verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, for thorns infest, nor thorns infest the ground. Do you see the spirit of it? Sin can stop now because the king is ruling. Now, it will not stop completely till his final consummation. I'm not at all suggesting that it's what it will eventually be. It's ultimately going to be the eternal state, the new heaven, and the new earth. But between the time of Christ's first coming and then, there's an action taken by the people of God, empowered by Christ in his spirit, to start taking over things for Christ so that... There is a conscious brought that's God's consciousness about his law and actions and, and things people do change. And we see a restoration, a reversal of the effects of the fall even now as Christ reigns through his people and grows his people, widens his people. And I know a lot of times when people first hear this, their, their argument is not exegetical or from the scriptures. It's, but look at the world, Tony. How can you say that? And I would suggest to you that that, uh, that evidence is a problem with our view. Covenantally, our view should be generational, not just what's going on now. We are faithful in the time that we are given. What God chooses to do with the seeds that you plant in your children now as you train them to be transformers for Christ, that's for future generations. And we, we cannot be chronological snobs. We have to think in terms of the generations that God is going to bring forth. We've lost many generations in the American church, but I would suggest to you that many generations are being built up in other parts of the world now. And so the work we do with our children has to do with future generational revival that can happen and reformation that can happen. You know, we didn't start a Christian school here, number one, to grow the church because it doesn't do that. Number two, we didn't do it to be a place where we can just hide our kids so they don't get affected by the world. We did it for a simple reason, because we believe that the future of God's kingdom is in the hands of people who will transform the culture for Christ. You've got to start when they're little for that. You cannot think that in high school now you're going to send them somewhere and they're going to learn about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has to be immersed in their thinking. They have to think the earth is ruled by God from the earliest day so that it's an anomaly when someone comes along and says to them that human beings and their wisdom and their smarts, that's what rules the world. I get a kick out of it. We're at this party last night and I watched my son talking to his pediatrician who comes here. And... Uh, his kindergarten teacher watched him when he was six months old. And there's part of me thinks, am I sheltering him too much? And then I'm thinking to myself, but when I ask him what the scriptures principally teach, he can tell me. And it's not just that he knows now. He's starting to wrap his mind around it. I can't change his heart, but I can give him all the tools of the kingdom of God 
so that as he has more and more exposure and is integrated more and more to the world that God made and rules, he can have the influence God wants him to have rather than being so secularized that he just learns how to get along. And what's sad to me is when a parent says to me, my child is doing real well in school. What does that mean? Well, they don't go out drinking with their friends. That's discipleship? I mean, that's not transformation. And I would submit to you that we've got to change our minds on the kingdom of God. And the efforts we take as a church, whether it's at home or school, have to be geared towards turning transformational, uh, turning our children into transformational agents for the kingdom, for future generations. Well, I see it in my lifetime exactly the way I hope I do. I don't know. God can certainly do it. But we've got to start now because I don't know if you've noticed, but at least in our particular national situation, things aren't getting better. And there's a part of that that excites me because there will be a time of bankruptcy when we're heading there where they're going to have to look around for those who have the truth, those who have timeless truth. And it won't be the pagans. It will be people that understand the kingdom of God. That's the road back. And I pray for that day. As difficult as times are, and we have to be actively involved in training the next generation for this. There can be nothing more important than getting this generation now and transforming their mindsets. And I say to you who are in the younger generation, don't waste your life. It's not that long. Don't fool around. Understand what God calls you to do. You're there to be a transformation, transforming agent for the kingdom of God. And it's going to happen with the way you live, the way you talk, the way you interact, the way you function in this society. And you've got to know more than just simple little uh, verse references when someone confronts you. You've got to have the whole world and life view wrapped around Christ. I can't say it enough how important it is. And I think this is the spirit behind this era that this hymn was written in, an understanding of how God would exact his sovereignty, and it's through his kingdom. Let No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. I want to say one other thing. This is to extend as far as the curse is found. It's not just about people. It's about creation. As Christians learn to treat creation, that which God has created, in the way that honors God, then we then can have an effect so that people quit worshiping nature, but on the other hand, they quit exploiting it also. And we have, a, we have a stewardship approach to the earth that we take from it, but we give back to it as well. And we redevelop it because we have the abilities, by God's grace, to know how to do that. We're so out of balance now. We've got two sides of the spectrum. Christ came to apply redemption to everything, creation and his people. And the church has to be leading the way in this. The final verse, in the present tense, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. How does he make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness? Very simply by the missionary enterprise of the church, the spreading of the gospel of grace. That's how he makes the nations prove his righteousness. When people from every tribe and tongue profess the same Lord Jesus, this is the way he proves his righteousness. And the spreading the gospel is not just simply going and telling the story of how we are estranged from God and need a Savior. That's certainly the kernel, the core. But it's also living the gospel, living mercy to others, and sharing Christ in those ways as well. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. This hymn of Isaac Watts is not about Christ's future coming. It's about what's real now. It's about what we are to be about. It's about our active work in the world by the power and the authority of King Jesus. What did he say at the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples, teaching them whatsoever I've commanded. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is not a commission of fear. That is not a commission of hold fort until I come back. That's not what he said. He said, go, take dominion. That's the basic application, if you couldn't tell already. Christ reigns now. We are not a defeated church. Look at the hymn's progression. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy to the, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. No more let sin and sorrows grow. He, we're under his reign. He rules the world with truth and grace. This hymn is about Christ's first coming and what's continuing to go on. It contains a biblical, victorious view of Christ and his church on earth now. Not some distant time. I would just close with this to give you a few principles to consider in how you might then apply them to your life. First of all, let us acknowledge that the Messianic kingdom was founded upon earth by the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The fundamental nature, secondly, of Christ's kingdom is essentially redemptive and spiritual rather than political and corporeal. Don't get me wrong, as people come to Christ, uh, laws will change. I really believe that the laws we have are what we want. It's a reflection of what we want. Complain all we want. It's what we get, what we ask for. That's the beauty, I guess, of the system we have. We have exactly what we're asking for. But what we're asking for will change as hearts change and have kingdom perspective. So I don't mean to say it has no political uh, implications, but rather that it is a redemptive act applied to individuals and to families uh, by God that then changes their outlook on the world. It's a supernatural thing. Christ's kingdom, thirdly, will exercise a transformational influence on world society and culture in this present age due to more and more people being converted to Christ, being made disciples. Now, I know this last point is debated, but this is what I believe the Scriptures say. This period will be drawn to a close by the personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ, accompanied by one literal resurrection of all people and one final judgment. I have an optimistic view, biblically, of what the church will do in the world. Again, I don't know how much I'll see in my life, but my job is with my immediate generation to provide for the next generation. And I don't judge it based on what success or failure I see. I base it on what I think God is doing in the world over time. And I believe in one literal return of Christ where he brings, brings us into the ultimate form of the kingdom, however glorious that looks. I do think this view of the kingdom has a profound effect in how we shall then live. Instead of waiting for the kingdom of come to come, my brothers and sisters, advance the kingdom where you are now in the smallest possible ways. And this breaks down to your very parenting with your child and just what you teach them about the world. I'm not talking about big ways where you're thinking, well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Do you have a child? You can. The kingdom of God in their minds and their hearts from the beginning. If you don't have a child, you're part of a covenant community, and there are others who look to you for this. And it's not just about children. I don't mean to say that if you come to faith as an adult, you're just too warped by the world and therefore can have no effect. No, in fact, you will have a supernatural renewal of mind where now you're going to start seeing things that someone who hadn't grown up in it won't see the difference, and you'll have that advantage in sharing it. So everybody has a part to play, even in the smallest ways. We're not waiting for the kingdom to come. We're advancing the kingdom. We're here now. Just be honest where you are. If that's all you could do today is be honest at your workplace, you will bring the kingdom of God to some level to a place that does not have it otherwise. On one hand, the world is destined to get worse until Christ returns. Most popular Christian books about the end times teach this kind of mindset. Yet I believe the scripture says that the world will get better as it relates to the church's sanctification. As the church matures and is discipled, it will get better. 
Finally, there's nothing we can do, some would say, to bring the kingdom. I would suggest to you that God commanded us to expand the kingdom. We're salt and light. Salt improves taste and preserves. What does light do? It dispels darkness. And darkness can't come back if the light's there. So it's not just that it it shows error. It brings truth. That's what salt and light means. It's not just holding forward or preserving. It's much, much more than that. So I say to you finally, my brothers and sisters, with regard to this wonderful hymn, whatever particulars you believe in and how things will ultimately consummate, let us agree with Isaac Watts and his biblical assessment. We are not in a defeated age, nor are we a defeated church. Our King and Savior reigns, despite all evidence to the contrary in our immediate situation. Joy to the world because the Lord reigns. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you sent us our King. Lord Jesus, we bow to you. Lord, change our lives so that even in the smallest way we could bring the kingdom of God to bear on this place that we live. I pray, O Lord, that we would not be afraid. We would be the church militant, not the church cowardly. And rather than being evangelifish, we would be people who stand firm for the truth. Because it's truth. And engage in this culture. See redemption applied to every part of this culture. I pray that as we look to a new year, that that would just be something different in our perspective. How we view the training of our children, the training of the children here in our own covenant body the discipleship of people who come to you later in their lives, the transformation that happens in their lives when they have a whole new world and life view, a kingdom view. I pray, Lord, that you would bring revival in our time, reformation in our time, that we would be able to see it, again, especially in this country, in this church. But, Lord, if it not be the case in our time, that we would look to this next generation and build into it everything we've got to build by your grace. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.